The Real Chemistry Podcast connects the dots between our guests and the innovative work they do to show up and shape the future of healthcare. Why? So you, the listener, are encouraged to join us on our relentless pursuit to make the world a healthier place for all. Some may call it idealism. We call it real chemistry. Good afternoon. This is Aaron Strout, Chief Marketing Officer of Real Chemistry and host of the Real Chemistry Podcast. Today, I am joined again by my now fairly regular guest host, our founder and chairman, Jim Weiss, and someone that you probably will remember having talked to us a few times during the pandemic, Dr. Monica Gandhi of UCSF, also an infectious disease uh, doctor. And today we revisit COVID, where we are, uh, are we out of the pandemic, what needs to be done, do we need to mask this fall, should we be getting boosters, Uh, which are the most effective COVID treatments, vaccines, is monkeypox uh, a real threat or have we handled that correctly, flu, you know, what should we be doing around that? So all the questions that we know you have, uh, hopefully this episode puts your mind at ease. So listen in, and as always, we love feedback, so please let us know what you think. Dr. Gandhi, always a pleasure to have you on the show. You, I guess, have the honor of becoming a regularly uh, scheduled guest, uh, and we love that. (laughs) I think we could ask for someone better, and obviously, uh, Jim, great to have you. And I think, why don't we start with a little bit of a, um, last time we talked was in the middle of May. I think- some things have changed since then, although probably less than the gaps in between the others, but maybe a current state of the state on COVID and where we are, and then we'll drill down into vaccines, boosters, masks, other airborne illnesses. Well, yeah, let's start because I actually have a question. I mean, a good way to jump off. You know, there was a 60 minutes piece. Joe Biden basically said, you know, COVID's over. Is COVID over? Because sometimes you get that sense when you're traveling around. And I was just in the UK, and I know you've got a UK study to reference as well that just came out this week um, from The Lancet. So I know we want to get into that. But starting from that standpoint, what's the reality? I mean, is COVID over? I think this is an excellent question and it everyone wants to use a different language, like semantics and language, right? Like when 1918 pandemic, last time we had a horrible influenza pandemic, we didn't test people for cases, right? We didn't swab people's noses and see if they had asymptomatic influenza. We just could tell that the hospitalizations were much lower, the deaths were much lower. And there was a kind of universally agreed upon it's over but we're always going to have influenza and influenza kept on going. And every year we adapt the influenza uh, vaccine to the circulating strains and we've never gotten rid of it. I think the terribly important thing to say about COVID is we're never going to get rid of it. And it feels like this should be obvious to everyone. Um, Only China is pursuing an eradication strategy, an elimination strategy that is failing left and right. It's really having serious effects, not only on their economy, but frankly, on um, if there's some, you know, humanity crises going on there when you lock people in their houses. And the reason we can't eradicate it is just four simple reasons. 29 species of animals have COVID. We killed 17 million mink in Denmark uh, at one summer, uh, 2020. That was, uh, th- they were apologized to, the, the mink were actually apologized to as they should be. You can't kill all 29 species of animals. Very short 
Um, smallpox didn't have any animal reservoirs. Smallpox had a short infectious period, only looked like smallpox and, and you got immune for life. SARS-CoV-2 has none of those features. We won't eradicate it. And it's that's so important to get across. And I'm sorry we can't, but we can't. And because of that, then we decide when we live with it. That Then we decide that we say, wait, we have the tools. We have boosters for older people. We have um, Paxlovid. We have monoclonal antibodies for very immunocompromised populations. We have really great studies about who's still at risk for COVID severe disease from the Lancet. And at what point do you say, we have the tools, we're going to move on with our, with our lives. And I will say UK, Europe, India, I would say probably every other country, um, but here aren't having as many arguments as we seem to be having. And there's just more arguments here. It depends on the state. It depends on the person. Um, but there is a lot of people saying it's not over. It is over. Depends on what you say. It'll never be over, but we have the tools. Well, speaking of tools, we'd love to you know dig into boosters. I think everyone at one point in time thought we've got to get boosters. Now a second booster, you know, and different flavors are out or, or types um, can you talk about sort of your thinking on what makes sense for whom? And I know you actually on Twitter have been introducing Novavax into the mix as well as a potential for a booster. So we'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yes. So the only three, four vaccines we have approved in the United States, at least, are Johnson Johnson, Pfizer, Moderna and Novavax. And Novavax is new. It's a protein based vaccine. So no mRNA, no DNA, no genetic material may be helpful for people who didn't want the, who were worried about the genetic material ones. So we'll talk about that in a minute. This, this study was really important. This large study this morning got released. So I'm so glad we got to talk about it today. It's in the Lancet, one of our best medical journals, 30 million people in the UK. And it said, who needed that third shot, that even that first booster? Who is, and who is still at risk? It's an observational study, but it's 30 million people. Who's still at risk for severe disease? at this point in time, October, 2022. And it's actually exactly what you'd expect. People who are over 65 are more at risk for uh, if they get a breakthrough after two doses to have had severe uh, severe disease, actually be hospitalized. And then people bef- under 65 who have multiple medical conditions and the average was four medical conditions, renal, cardiovascular, um, lung, and cancer. So these multiple medical conditions or being over 65 are the highest risk groups. And what this paper said is, let's now focus on those populations. Now, this over 65 is a very interesting thing. This number keeps on coming out because remember Paxlovid, the antiviral, which is a protease inhibitor, was only studied in a randomized controlled trial in unvaccinated individuals at risk for severe disease. That's the EPIC-HR study 89% protection from hospitalization and death, unvaccinated. Well, hopefully a lot more people are vaccinated. So what do we know about those who are vaccinated who need Paxlovid? And the biggest study on that that did really nice uh, uh, kind of an observational adjusted analyses from Israel published in the New England Journal shows, again, it's that magic number, 65 and older are most at risk for severe breakthroughs, especially if you have comorbidities. So this number of 65 is really coming up for, I think, who needs boosters the most, and absolutely who, if especially if you have comorbidities, we should think about our therapeutics, our um, antivirals, Paxlovid, and our monoclonal antibodies, uh, BEB specifically. So just to be clear, so if you're 65 and over, pretty much generally get a booster, you know, you'll get Paxlovid if you unfortunately do get it. Yes. 
That's a no-brainer to me, both both things, yeah. So not that cohort, it gets clear. You know, in that, you know, let's call it 50 to 65 range, is it really, and then anyone younger, of course, that that they have these concomitant issues, right? So what would what what are some of the things, what are the real telltale things that you, if you've got these things, you really should be seriously considering more aggressive prevention and treatment? Yeah, that's what I really appreciated about this um, paper and the specific underlying medical conditions that were associated with having a more severe breakthrough um, were essentially specifically people who are receiving immunosuppressants, those who had chronic kidney disease, and then the other conditions, they they had to be kind of clustered that people ha- uh, had them together, and they were heart disease, lung disease, and cancer. So, you know, the, the question is, like, should everyone get a booster? Because this is how the White House Task Force is posing it, saying uh, two days ago, actually, the, the booster was the Omicron-specific booster, the bivalent booster was approved for five and up. So the way that the messaging from the White House is, is just everyone get a booster. And you can argue kind of two ways about that. That sounds simple. And I think that's actually what they're trying to do is just say, it's simple. We have the booster available for everyone. We've paid for it. Just go get it. Um, Versus is it better to say who is most at risk? Because we're not going to keep on boosting everyone every six months. We're just, there's never going to be a sustainable enterprise where we boost everyone in the world every six months. The WHO has said only boost older people. They said that on March 30th. So when do we start what other countries are doing? Because other countries are specifically saying older people and those with comorbidities. We haven't started that yet in this country. But the one reason that I'm pushing it in older people so much is if you sometimes are too diffuse in your messaging, um, you may not stress enough to older people how much I think they really need it. And so I think it depends on what how you think in an advertising way. I think it's better to target those who are older because that's good public health as opposed to more diffuse messaging where fewer people may get it. Now, it brings up a good point, Dr. Gandhi, because we're going into flu season, right? And we do encourage people to get flu shots every year. So do we see COVID being more like that over time? Because you said it's not going away. And you know, should be people I think are sort of forgetting or foregoing flu shots because they feel like we just went through this pandemic. If I survive COVID, then maybe flu won't get me. But I would argue it's probably pretty important to consider getting your flu shot now. I'd love to, you know, get your take on that. Yeah, I completely agree about getting the flu shot, but there are sort of three reasons, three things to think about. One is that already the flu shot recommendation, you give a higher dose to people 65 and older. So we're already reminding ourselves that respiratory pathogens have always affected older people the most, except for some that are very, very, that young children are very susceptible to like RSV, respiratory syncytial virus. So um, everyone getting the flu shot is a very good idea because one other thing to think about is what does viral interference mean? Viral, viral interference means that over the last two and a half years, we've seen mostly COVID as our respiratory pathogen of the day. And it's not just because these other ones were hiding and we didn't diagnose them. There's a phenomenon called viral interference with in that in the nose, for example, they're competing. And there was a very nice journal of infectious disease paper. And we haven't seen multiple other respiratory viruses that we used to see, adenovirus, rhinovirus, RSV, influenza, parainfluenza, human metanumovirus. They've just been at lower rates than they were. Every time we see COVID go down, 
they come right back up. May of 2021, after so many people had gotten vaccinated, we saw a really high rate of RSV in young children. And it really wasn't because everyone was going crazy and, um, you know, being around each other. Honestly, it is it is this viral interference phenomenon. So now as COVID is in a lull at the moment, we are seeing influenza rates go up. They have they went up in Australia, our harbinger, because it's the southern hemisphere um, in the in the in our summer. And now they're going up here, influenza rates. So it is important to get influenza vaccine. And what I worry about is we've lost trust in public health. There's some distrust in public health and vaccines because we've been so focused on one infection. We need to bring back our trust and say, yeah, we do need to get our influenza vaccine. And I'm going to be more nuanced about my booster recommendations for COVID so that you will please go out and get your influenza vaccine too. Because viral interference means all of our respiratory infections over the last two and a half years have mostly been COVID. But as COVID goes down, adenovirus, rhinovirus, all these are going to come back. Well, that's so... You know, like we needed to get confused more. You hear bivalent, you know, there's four or five different flu shots. There's different types of, you know, boosters. What 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 should people go out and ask for, look for? What's the best when they go to do it? Are they looking to get a shot in each arm, bivalent? Can you explain a little bit about each of these um, things that are coming out for our uh, listeners? Yeah. So the way to think of the, it's true. Um, so the way to think of the uh, Omicron, l- let's think of the, the COVID vaccine as unless you haven't gotten your primary series, there's no reason to get anything but the bivalent booster. Why do I say that? Because there was an idea that that with the mRNA vaccines, you could always adapt them to what's circulating. And it is really nice that we were able to finally adapt the mRNA vaccine so that it's coding for BA5, BA4, and the old strain. I really don't understand why we're still coding for the old strain, but we are. So the bi- that's what the bivalent aspect means. And um, yes, we don't have a lot of human data on the bivalent vaccine, but on the other hand, it's it's just coding changes. So it shouldn't be any less safe or any less effective than the old ones. There shouldn't, it's not a big change. Um, and so because of that, when you're going to, if you decided to get a booster for COVID, go for the bivalent Omicron specific booster. What the flu vaccine is, it's, it's quadrivalent. So quadrivalent, four different, you know, types of uh, influenza strains in there. It actually should be used for everyone unless you have an egg protein allergy, because remember it's grown in chicken eggs. Um, so, um, it is a quadrivalent vaccine and how we think of it for older people is we use a higher dose. So it's called the flu block quadrivalent vaccine. And if you are, uh, basically this is the vaccine that we really want to give for our older um, patients because we need that higher dose. And, um, so 65 and older should get one of these quadrivalent vaccines. And there's different ones. There's called flu zone and flu ad and flu block. Um, and then, um, and, and they're the most at risk. And then if you're younger, you can get um, a trivalent vaccine. I know this sounds super confusing, but you can get a trivalent vaccine because you don't need that high dose quadrivalent. Um, and then there is a um, nasal vaccine for those who are allergic to eggs. Right. I got the quadrivalent. You know, I got yeah. Perfect. For uh, flu, I went out. That I always go get. 
because I've always felt like, oh, flu is always here. You know, it's always around. Flu is always here. Yeah. And these are very safe vaccines. I mean, they're really safe and they are just, I know we're all influenced by what we've seen, biases, but um, I had, you know, in 2017, I saw someone become so ill from the flu, Eight, 40 to 50,000 deaths a year from the flu um, in a typical year is not, is nothing to not want to avoid when we have vaccines. And we also have therapeutics, by the way. We have Oseltamivir for, for influenza. Right. One of the things I want to bring up is, and we were starting to talk about this during our sort of pre-prep, is we now have a couple of years of the vaccines under our belt, right? And I think we're starting to see between long COVID and other residual impacts of some of the vaccines. And obviously, this is a little bit of a you know, slippery slope, but would love to sort of talk a little bit about some things you're seeing. Jim, I know you were asking about AFib. Could there be any correlation to, you know, getting COVID and the and the boosters and all that? So let's open the dialogue and, you know, talk a little bit about sort of where your head is at and what you're seeing and how people should be thinking about it or worrying about or not worrying about, you know, any sort of related symptoms or, or longer term effects. I think this is a very excellent question because we um, have been, we should talk about, you know, the rare adverse effects of vaccines um, only because that brings up more trust in vaccines. So um, for uh, example, there was just a study that looked like aluminum content in vaccines could be associated with the development of asthma. And then the study was really broken down and it didn't look like it was, but you have to discuss it. Like if someone puts out studies, you have to discuss it. You don't want to you don't want to appear someone, you know, who doesn't um, evaluate the data. So I would say it's pretty clear to me at this point, two and a half years in, and then not two and a half years into the vaccines, but at least um, more than now, a year and a half into the vaccines, that the DNA vaccines, um, which would be AstraZeneca, Sputnik V, and Johnson Johnson, which we have in our country, are rarely associated with clotting disorders and also um, paradoxically bleeding as well, which has to do with the clotting. And it's why, because it's more in younger women that we don't really love Johnson Johnson vaccine. Younger women are rep recommending it more for men or older people. And then the mRNA vaccines, they really do seem very safe, but their main side effect, and it can happen, and it happens in a very specific group, um, which are young men, is myocarditis. And the myocarditis side effect is often really nothing, like just mild inflammation. But um, there have been some researchers who brought up a concern that it would cause remodeling of the place where you get um, myocarditis, and that could be a foci um, for arrhythmias later. And so the thing about myocarditis, which is rare, is that it really seems you can avoid it by extending the interval between doses. And this is, I don't, I'm not sure why we don't talk about this enough. I've, I found it really confusing because the UK, Canada, and India have always talked about extending the duration between doses to avoid that one, that particular adverse effect. And Canada always did eight weeks between doses from the very get-go for young people between the original Pfizer and the original Moderna doses instead of that three to four weeks. And then, um, and they just did not see near even the mild myocarditis cases that we saw. And it was always after the second dose. So really just extending that interval. I have a 12 and a 14 year old. They both got the vaccine, but they both got it eight weeks between and they're both male. Um, and so then that brings up the booster duration, because at this point, there's quite a bit of data 
we have a paper coming out of this in Lancet Infectious Disease next week, that you want your booster when we're talking about the COVID-19 Omicron-specific bivalent booster to be spaced out from your last booster. And the CDC says three months, but there's really good evidence. It's even better. You should go even longer, including an NIH study that showed that if you go too short, you don't get as an effective immune response. So I'm recommending four to six months, preferably six months between your last booster and this Omicron specific booster, or even the um, a last your last infection and this booster. And that minimizes side effects and increases effectiveness, and it increases antibody levels and increases T-cell responses. So it's all win-win. All right. So to clarify, you know, if you had the Omicron, you're more than likely Omicron four or five COVID, yeah. wait six months post that resolution. That's really your marker. It's not since your last booster itself, right? Correct. And so many people were infected with Omicron during the BA1, BA2, BA2.12.1, BA4, BA5, all these subvariants of Omicron. In fact, um, we don't know how many people were infected, but there was a Seattle model that showed that 75% of the planet was infected with Omicron at least over since the beginning of December. So if that's true, then if you know that you were infected, because 56% of people actually were asymptomatic in one JAMA study, then time that booster six months after your last infection. Well, thank you for bringing some light to that, because obviously we've learned a lot more, but I think as we've been saying, it's a little more confusing. And especially as you think about it, vis-a-vis other um, airborne diseases, respiratory diseases, I guess one of the things that would be helpful is going into, you know, the winter, the three of us are lucky because we're all on the West coast and we don't have anything as severe, but I know a lot of public and private institutions have dropped a lot of their vaccine mandates and some of their regulations, wet mask wearing, you know, any, thoughts on and recommendations for like my mom is flying this weekend down to Florida and she's over 65. Should she be wearing a mask on a plane? You know, will we be going back into wearing masks indoors? Um, What are your latest thoughts on that one, Dr. Gundy? You know, I have really looked at the mask literature as closely as I could over the last two and a half years. And especially at the beginning of the pandemic, we had no other tools. Like we didn't have a vaccine. We got the vaccine in December of 2020. And so anything that would possibly reduce the severity of disease, I was in favor of. And I wrote a lot about masks and those, because masks seemed epidemiologically to reduce the severity of disease, maybe because they're blocking out some of the virus. Um, I really pushed for them. But then when the vaccine came, I was all about vaccines because at that point, that's the best way to reduce the severity of disease. And it's internally in your, in your, body and it doesn't rely on something external. It's just that mask wearing can remind people maybe to keep away from each other, which actually, to be fair, was what people used to wonder about masks. Was it like a external sign that we wanted to avoid respiratory pathogens? But when I think about the mask literature at this point, cloth masks and especially masks in school, we're not seeing great data that that really influenced transmission because people are wearing, little kids are wearing masks in all different ways. And even if it says Paw Patrol on it, um, it's a cloth mask that doesn't mean that it blocks the teeny little viral particles. And so I think for children, especially, you know, you don't want to do anything that um, really interferes with their mental health. So we really have to decide and most places aren't mandating masks in schools. So what about older people? In terms of older people, the best literature is frankly physical sciences data. And that is where you on mannequins, you put specific types of masks and then you spray respiratory pathogens at them. 
and they can't get through specific types of masks, but it has to be specific types of masks. It's N95s that are fitted, KN95s, FFP2s, and KF94s. That's the simplest way to say those four types of masks. And so if you are an older person and you want to avoid respiratory pathogens, then you can wear those type of masks. And, and those are the type of masks. You shouldn't wear a cloth mask. Surgical is probably not good enough. You should wear those types of masks. Do I think that they should be mandated when there are vaccines? I actually don't. And I've really, really you know, said that very plainly because I am, I am concerned enough about the loss in trust in public health that there are some people who don't like to wear masks and I simply do not want to um, reduce uh, trust any longer. I will tell you my father is 87. He has had five shots actually because he went through B-cell lymphoma and so we made him get all his shots. He's had five shots. He's actually 88. We checked after his third shot in the middle of chemotherapy and he still had sky-high antibodies to COVID because these vaccines work really well. And he doesn't like to wear a mask. He's hard of hearing and he doesn't like to wear a mask and he doesn't wear a mask anywhere, indoors, plane, anywhere. And I am so assured because I happen to have checked his antibodies with COVID um, and I'm so assured of these, how well these vaccines work that it has to be, I think it has to be a personal choice. How did you check his antibodies? You know, we've heard different stories about that. Is there an easy way now that we can check our antibodies and see where we're at? There are two types of antibodies. There are nucleic capsid antibodies that... Um, if you check your COVID nucleoside um, uh, capsid antibodies, that means that you had natural infection because the vaccines only induce anti-spike IgG. If you've had natural uh, infection or the vaccine, you'll get anti-spike IgG. And no, we haven't made it really commercially available. In his case, he got it checked because he was going through chemotherapy. And so the doctor, you know, ordered it um, so we could figure out if he needed Evusheld, a monoclonal antibody to protect him as he goes through chemotherapy, which he did get. Um, but it, it hasn't been commercially available. Kind of why? Because your antibody response doesn't reflect the entire breadth of our immune response. Our immune response is threefold. You generate T cells to the vaccines, and T cells are the main arm of the immune system that fights viruses. I know that as an HIV doctor because people with very low T cells get very terrible viral infections. And then second are B cells, and B cells are aided by the T cells to produce more antibodies. They're the recipe book for more antibodies. And if they see the, the virus again, they'll just turn out more antibodies to protect you against the virus. The problem is B cells take two to four days to make new antibodies. So you're still susceptible to that upper respiratory infection while you're waiting for your B cells to make more antibodies. And that's why I think older people, they can't wait for two to four days for their B cells to make antibodies. I think they need their antibodies nice and plump going into these uh, respiratory pathogen season, which is why I'm really recommending the Omicron specific booster for older people. Excellent. So, so you mentioned, you know, confidence in public health. Can we look at the monkeypox experience and say, maybe we learned something and maybe that worked out pretty well? Do you see that as a positive case in, in, with respect to public health? That is a great point because at the very beginning of the monkeypox outbreak, which remember started May 2nd. So monkeypox is a um, orthopox virus. It's a cousin of smallpox. We've eradicated smallpox and it was causing outbreaks in Western Central Africa. We had just never seen big outbreaks like this. On May 2nd, the first report from the United Kingdom to the World Health Organization that we're seeing monkeypox cases, and they're mainly in gay men, 
And then really that started the global public health emergency. And we've seen 65,000 cases of monkeypox in 118 countries. And it was really a shock to see this spread mostly sexually and among gay men. And then we have seen the incredible success of our public health campaign and all the cases are going down worldwide. So what happened? At the very beginning, there was a lot of, I mean, I wrote an article in The Atlantic that said, we're underreacting to monkeypox. We have the vaccine. We got to go. Um, but to be very fair to our public health authorities, um, they absolutely got on the ball and got the vaccine out. Now, remember, COVID didn't have a vaccine ready for it. That's why life was so miserable in March of 2020. If we had a vaccine out the door, everything would have been different. We took, you know, of course, Short, relatively short period of time, but nine months to develop a highly effective vaccine. The monkeypox had a vaccine because the smallpox vaccine, they're so closely related, is the vaccine for monkeypox. So all we had to do was take smallpox vaccine, which we had. In fact, the military still gets smallpox uh, vaccinated because of uh, potential bioterrorism, even though it's eradicated. And we had that. We just had to up uh, produce the supplies of the Genius vaccine and start giving it out. And to the credit of the US and the UK and Europe and Canada, I have to give special credit to because they did it first. They got the vaccine supplies from the um, from the Nordic company that makes it. They even got permission from that company to make local vaccine in the US and they have increased the vaccine supply. We have seen the cases since August 26 really plummet in the United States. We're on our way. The World Health Organization director, Dr. Tedros, thinks we may eliminate uh, monkeypox completely from the UK and Europe and, and Canada and Australia. I think that's likely because, again, animal reservoirs is the name of the game of being able to eliminate. And there's no animals that seem to have it. The rodent population doesn't have it in UK and Europe. But the rodent population does have monkeypox in Western Central Africa. So my final lesson of monkeypox and of COVID and of HIV is that we need global equity in our responses to infectious diseases and why we haven't gotten monkeypox vaccine to Western Central Africa as we've been concentrating on this outbreak is completely mystifies me because that is still a place where endemic outbreaks occur. Well, speaking of Africa, the other last question I have is related to Ebola, because we are hearing of rises in cases and maybe some that have crossed into the North American sphere. What can you tell us about that situation? So remember, Ebola is a terrible hemorrhagic fever virus. It can have such a high mortality rate. Right now, the current mortality rate of this Ebola outbreak in Uganda is 64%. It is terrible virus. From 2013 to 2016, there was a West African kind of simmering Ebola outbreak. And we saw that. And we saw nine cases that actually came here in, into the United States. In this case, the Ebola outbreak that's occurring is in Uganda. It's in five districts now in Uganda. It is very, very, again, deadly. Luckily, as soon as you see that there's an Ebola outbreak, there is isolation and quarantine going on. But importantly, we need a vaccine. So there are different strains of Ebola, and the, this is called the Sudan uh, Ebola strain. And we don't have a ready-made vaccine for this. We have a vaccine in trials. And the purpose, and the WHO is working very hard on this, is to get that vaccine that we have as a trial vaccine quickly into Uganda and then trial it to, so that we can get cases down. It, to me, speaks, though, and because we haven't really touched on measles or polio either, that, that infectious diseases are always there. And the best way to combat them, in my mind, is never masks or staying away from human other human beings. It's always been vaccines. Vaccine, as soon as we got vaccines, the world changed on its ear, like everything got better in the world. 
So it's really about vaccines and we need vaccines for all of these outbreaks and we need trust. We need the trust of the public to please believe us about these vaccines, which is why I also think that nuance around the boosters and admitting to side effects if they rarely occur, that's all a very fair game because we need our polio vaccination rates up, we need measles vaccination rates up, and we need a good vaccine for all Ebola strains. All right. Public trust, good vaccines, and uh, good preparedness, right? Yes. All right. Well, thanks for all your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. Want more episodes of The Real Chemistry Podcast? We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Stitcher app, or iHeartRadio via the Health Podcast Network. Go to realchemistry.com for more info.